Now, usually, I like to start a message by giving you a story or maybe an example that's going to catch your attention that will help lead into the story because those kinds of things are always helpful, right? But not today. The story today is too good for me to do that because Jesus in this story has already made it compelling enough. And I know for you, maybe, you didn't catch everything because when we read out loud, everyone's mumbling, and you can't even hear half of the verses that you are preaching or talking through. So I'm just going to remind you really quickly who Jesus is describing to you, and I want to keep you to keep this in mind, that Jesus is using this guy as your example, okay? So in verse 1, Jesus, right off the bat, says that he is dishonest. And if you have remembered what you just read, he basically is so dishonest that he decides that for his own self-interest and preservation, he is going to cost his master millions and millions of dollars. All for himself. For what? So that his future is secured and that he doesn't have to live a life like a slave. He is dishonest, he's unrighteous, and is horrible. He's a horrible person, right? Horrible. And yet, the most fascinating thing about this passage comes in verse 8, because Jesus comes in and makes a comment, and he uses the master the character in the story, to be his voice, and he says that he commends him. Let that sit there for a second, because I don't know about you, but the last time I read my Bible, how many times do you remember Jesus picking someone that bad and commending them? Never. The, the, the amount is zero. The amount is zero. And that's one of the things that makes this passage difficult. Is that why in the world would Jesus pick such an awful person who obviously sucks at managing someone else's wealth and says, be a steward just like him. So, I thought it would be a little fun just to, for you guys just to turn to one another and maybe try to answer that question. Why do you think Jesus would pick someone like this to talk about stewardship? So I'll give you, your, I'll give you guys about a minute. Yeah, yeah, so I want you guys to actually turn physically maybe and, you know, let's try that. Okay. Pretty hard, right? Maybe you're sitting there thinking, I hope Sergio answers this question for me, because I don't know. And again, I just want to reach out to Crossway and thank them for allowing me to preach on this passage today. 
But I like this passage quite a bit, actually, because it draws out such an important point using someone so dishonest. And I like those kinds of passages because whenever Jesus does this, whenever Jesus uses parables, especially a parable like this, he knows, because obviously stewardship, you're thinking money, maybe time, resources, right? It's a sensitive subject. Always. And so what I always love about Jesus whenever he tells these kinds of stories is that Jesus is never satisfied with answering just a question. Whenever he uses these parables to answer a question, he looks deeper. He looks actually, not just by answering a question, but what your heart is going to object to. And I think what he does so effectively is he attacks always both of them so well at the same time. And he's going to use this dishonest man to speak into your life. So I think now that I have hopefully your attention, I'll answer your question for you. Why does Jesus choose to use a dishonest guy who's horrible in almost every single way to be your example of how to be a steward? So I'm going to go over the passage a little bit, if you don't mind. So we start off, obviously, with the first one. He's a dishonest steward. He's bad at his job. He is what you would think of today as a financial manager, right? Most wealthy people today do not manage their own money because the amount of stuff that they have and own is so massive and abundant that they have to have other people look over it. And that's kind of exactly what this guy does. And he has every right to negotiate his wealth and his debt because he was hired for that position for that reason, right? It seems pretty straightforward, and every once in a while, he has to give an account, right? He has to say, I've made this much money for you. I've done this, or I've done that. Well, so far, he's done a really bad job, and he's probably done a pretty bad job for a pretty long time because it finally gets to the master, and it's over. He doesn't want him, obviously, anymore because he really, really sucks at his job, But you have to put yourself in the place of the steward. And that's the key to understanding this parable. Because Jesus typically doesn't give people names. He typically calls them that guy or that certain person is usually what Jesus does. So whenever he decides to give them a title or a specific name, there's always a meaning. So follow the character. If you're in his situation, what would you do? Because his concern is his future, right? If you look down in verses 2 and 3, it talks about how his main concern is that basically that he's going to become a slave. He doesn't want to do harsh labor. He's lived a life too long of comfort managing this guy's wealth. And he knows that by the time he leaves, Just like in today's culture, if you were to have done a horrible job, there's no way you're going to use that employer as your reference. And in that society, since it's so small, everyone would have known how bad of a manager he is. So he would never be able to manage again. And he's thinking about all of his prospects, and he's thinking, man, once word gets out, the only thing that I'm going to be fit for is slavery, harsh labor. 
and he has very little time. So what does he do? He quickly comes up with a plan. And his plan is to leverage what he has for his future. And what does he, and what he, does he have to leverage with? He's still obviously in command or in possession of his master's wealth, but his master's debt. So he leverages what he can, and he makes deals. And the items that are listed, which is wheat and oil, those are not significant. But what's significant is the amount of debt that he reduces. Because it is so massive that, I mean, in today's money, you'd be thinking millions of dollars of debt that he's relieving each one of these masters. Now think about that for a second. If someone did that for you, wouldn't you be grateful? And in that culture, you wouldn't just be grateful. You would feel obligated, actually, to repay them back. And those guys that he's cutting deals for, in order to have that kind of debt, would have to be pretty darn wealthy because no one's going to lend money to anybody if they don't have enough collateral, right? So these guys are all wealthy. And by the end of the story, he just made a whole bunch of wealthy friends because now his future's secure. He doesn't have to worry about money anymore. He doesn't have to worry about harsh labor anymore because all these rich people now are going to owe him big. He has successfully secured his future. Pretty smart, right? Pretty smart guy. But let's not shy away from the question, right? Why does Jesus choose this guy? He's so evil and dishonest in his plot. Why does he choose him? Why does Jesus choose this guy? Because he's so real. But more than that, because what Jesus is doing, he's not commenting on the man himself. What he's accommodating are his actions. And his actions were effective. The steward is getting praised because of his quick thinking and his smart plan to keep himself employed. The steward has effectively secured his future for the rest of his life. And just like a good son, as it says in verse 8, he is a son of this world and he has successfully secured his future in this world. He has thought it through and he has secured it. See, that's the twist in the story. The twist in the story is figuring out why would Jesus commend him? It's because he was effective leveraging his own future here because he is of this world and he lives in this world and that's the future that he's concerned with. But I'm just kidding. The real twist actually in the story is towards you because this parable isn't addressed to Gentiles or non-believers. It's addressed to the people following Jesus the closest and he says, 
basically in verse eight that the sons of this world are much better at leveraging what they have for their future here than the sons of light, which would be believers, for their future in eternity. The real twist is to his disciples, it's not just how to manage your money, but he's saying these people are much better at planning their future than you are at planning your heavenly future. And he's using an unrighteous guy to kind of give him that swift punch. Because no one wants to be compared to an unrighteous guy, right? But it sends a stinging message to the person listening who's the believer, which is that look at how good he is at managing his stuff for his future. And it begs the question, how good are you at stewarding for your future if your future is in heaven? So, we're gonna go back into the parable and answer that question for ourselves as believers. How is God using this steward to show us how we can be effective stewards for our eternal kingdom with God, right? And there's, I'm just gonna go over three simple points, which is God wants us to be generous with what we possess. He wants us to be faithful in the small, and he wants us to serve him first. Faithful in the small, generous, Serve him first. I don't have this passage up, but it's in your Bibles. If you were to look down in chapter 16, verse 13, keeping God first is the first one I'm going to go over. Because in that passage, it deals with a very famous passage in the Bible, which is you have, you have, you can only have one master. Either you're going to make money your master are you going to make God your master? What God is basically saying is, who are you going to set first in your life? Is it going to be money, the possessions yourself, or is it going to be your wealth? And that's important to always keep in mind. Because if you're believers, then what you really think of your life and your possessions is like this manner. It's not really yours. You're just leveraging it. You're just using it for who? Your master. If your master is God, then you have to prioritize his interests first. And he uses an interesting word here, Luke, in verse 9. He calls wealth unrighteous. He says, unrighteous wealth. And the reason why he uses the word unrighteous wealth is because it, that phrase actually is really a word in the Greek which just means manum. And manum not to be complicated, it just means it's an object or property that can lead to or that can be worshipped. And since in that culture, in that society, it was a lot of idolatry, meaning a lot of people went around just giving money to different temples, it was a part of their life because that's how they functioned. Like if I was to sail across the sea, 
what I would do is I would visit my local temple and use my money, leverage it, to give it to that God to bless me on my voyage. Or if I had a crop and my harvest looked like it wasn't gonna do very well, I would go down to my local idol that is responsible for that and I would leverage my money, give it to the temple and ask that deity to bless my land. And what Jesus is telling you and cautioning you is that you can use this in basically in a good way or in a bad way. The unrighteousness comes from the use of it. And what Jesus is saying is, instead of leveraging it towards a deity, I want you to leverage it towards what I would like you to do with it. So you have to prioritize God first because if you do that, the first thing that God's gonna convict you of leads down to the second point. He's gonna want you to give it away. He's gonna want you to be generous. Again, look down in verse nine, it says, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into their eternal dwellings. Make friends for yourself. Follows the pattern of what the steward did. He made deals with people so that they could receive him, right? So that now they become friends. And Jesus is saying, just like how that guy made deals and basically gave them money, you're going to give away your money, your possessions, for other people's sake, for their needs, so that when you reach your future, your, as it says at the end, eternal dwelling, you'll receive them. And obviously in the Bible, being generous is a very common theme. It comes up a lot. So I'm just going to list off two passages that I really like on this topic, which is, comes from Proverbs 21, 26. It says, the righteous give and doesn't hold back. You don't hold back because you're just managing it, right? It's not yours. 2 Corinthians 9, 11, you will be enriched in every way by the generosity in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. That passage in Corinthians deals with how when you use your money, when you use your time, when you use your possessions, people will see who your master is and you're gonna use that to leverage them towards your master. And maybe if you're still wondering how you could be generous, I mean, if you look at that back table, there's a whole bunch of signups for all these different things that you can leverage your time, your money to helping others. I mean, it's called be generous for goodness sakes. It fits so well with this message. Just do it. Do you realize how many of those kids don't have families? and how a simple gift could change their life around? I don't think you think about that because I think sometimes you don't value the small things, which leads into the third point. I think many times we think so big that it hesitates us to do the smaller things. But that's why 
whenever generosity is brought up, Jesus always talks about doing it from your heart. You give what you can. As it says in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, each of you should give to what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctant or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God just wants you to give. God just wants you to manage it the right way. And so, kind of to drive the point home, kind of want to close off with this video really quick. I met Dan Dewey. He would come in every Thursday at the same time, about 10.30. And he would order about 14 to 20 drinks. That's a lot of drinks. What are you doing? bring them over to Michigan Cancer Institute. What would you like today? What sounds good? Hot or cold? That's our choices. Hot. We've narrowed it down. I'll go with a hot tea today. Just Ooh. regular tea. And you, sir? Hot chocolate's fine for me. Father went to the hospital. I says, do you want a coffee? When there's people sitting beside him, I says, he's buying. I got his wallet. So then anybody that was sitting there would get a free whatever they wanted. You know, I bring it back to him. So it just started like that. I asked him, should I keep going? People enjoy this. He goes, yeah, go ahead. There's three words that I'll remember forever. Call him Dan the Man. Not only does he bring coffee, he's doing it out of his heart because what he's doing is just trying to make a difference. He's now an official caregiver. <laughs> he's giving coffee. He's a, at least as a caregiver, I'm a caregiver. Dan is a volunteer caregiver. <laughs> He's a special person. He was put here for a reason. Not so much as what he does, but just the way he tries to cheer everybody up when he's here. All right. We're in business now. When I came to meet the doctor and the staff, they says, you're going to love coming on Thursdays. It's like, now why would a chemo patient be happy about coming on Thursday? I soon found out it was because of Dan. Every week they say, but what do you get out of it? I says, I get a lot out of it. Because all these people really enjoy it. And they enjoy some goofball that wears shorts in the winter. I did have a reaction on my second chemotherapy day. And Dan had gone out to get the coffee. And when he came back, he brought me a rose. And that was really, really, really special. What touches me is the reaction in, the, in each person to make them smile. People without hope come in here for hope. I'll do it with my last breath and my last dollar. Isn't crazy how something so small as a cup of coffee becomes something so big? Like it says in verse 10, be faithful in the small. Just be faithful in the small. That cup of coffee probably cost him $2. And he ended up giving people that are receiving chemo hope. And it seems small, but you know, those people that walk into that ward and receive chemo, they count their time. They count their hours. 
because they're in a place where they don't see too much hope if they're at that point. And obviously in my experiences in dealing with my mom and going with her sometimes to receive chemo, it is an unpleasant process because by the end of the day, she would have been nauseous, maybe thrown up a couple of times, losing hair. Even the smell of that area of the hospital today gives me memories that I do not desire to remember. I mean, someone doing so, something so horrible for themselves to preserve a little bit of life is something that I always wrestle with in my heart as I remember those days. But isn't it amazing how something as small as a cup of coffee or maybe even your presence in that room could do for somebody's life if you're just a little generous with it. God has given you so much. You don't have to start big. You can start small right now with that coworker who doesn't talk to you or to anybody in their office. You can start with that neighbor that you've always wanted to talk to but never could. Or maybe you can start with a friend who maybe is in a situation that you've been praying for but have never reached out to. And it can start as something as small as that. And God can grow it to something so much more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you again, Lord God, just for the abundance of what you have given us, Lord. Thank you again just for the privilege of your word and how good it is to our souls and how it encourages us, Lord God, to steward, Lord God, what we have, what you have blessed us with as we are the managers, Lord God, of your possessions, to manage it, Lord God, for your kingdom and for your goodness. And I pray that, Lord, that you would convict us deeply, Lord God, of how much we need to steward, Lord God, well what we have for you. Because there are so many needs out there, Lord God. Especially in this holiday season, I'm just reminded of how many people don't have what I have. And it's such a blessing, Lord God, to have that I pray that, Lord, that you would help us to make friends, to help people, Lord God, to lead to our master, to you, Lord that we would leverage it well so that, Lord, that they would have a future that would not end here, but that would end in eternity with you and your awesome and amazing presence. So, Lord, convict our hearts to start today to be more generous, to prioritize you more by starting even with the smallest things that we can do in our lives. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.